I'll ask you to go ahead and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, having read 17 to 22, I'm going to pick up our reading in verse 23 and read to the end of the chapter. First Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, congregation, this is the very word of God given to us, our comfort and our hope. Let's hear it with care. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Amen. That is the Word of God, and we trust that the Spirit of God will bless the preaching, reading, and hearing of it this morning. Well, our subject for this morning is division in communion. Division in communion. And I hope you hear the contradiction in that statement. Communion is a coming together. Communion is a time when we come together and enjoy our union with Christ and our union with one another as members of his body. The text before us is a beautiful and well-known passage. It records for us the institution of the sacrament of communion. And many conservative scholars suggest that These were likely the first words of the incarnate Christ to be written down in the scriptures. And what were the first words of the incarnate Christ to be written down in the Bible? This is my body, which is for you. Friends, those are precious words 
Those are beautiful words filled with love and grace and mercy. They communicate to us the blessed sacrifice of our Savior for sinners like us. And those words really show us the centrality of the cross in our life of faith. They communicate that the eternal Son of God took a body to Himself. That He lived a life of obedience in our place. That He gave His body. He shed His blood that we might be forgiven and enjoy union and communion with Him and with each other. And what we may often forget, as I highlighted earlier, what we may often forget is that this beautiful and well-known and solemn passage comes in the context of a very serious case of sin. Specifically, right in the middle of a case of severe division and individualism and selfishness in the church. This is a theological passage, but I think more than that, it is a pastoral passage. You see, the Corinthians were like us. They struggled with selfishness. They struggled with individualism. And their church, like ours, is never immune to division and faction. In fact, it seems that Satan's primary weapon against the church is division. Satan believes what Jesus taught, that a house divided cannot stand. And what we are warned here of is that if we let subtle grudges subtle resentments take root in our hearts that a church can easily and quickly become fractured and divided and worst of all when that happens the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes obscured now the Bible teaches each of us must trust in Christ personally you must claim him as your savior personally but once we are redeemed by him we are brought into a spiritual family union with Christ means union with his people you can't have one without the other and that's what the Corinthians were forgetting that is what we can often forget that is the truth that has almost been lost in the modern evangelical church that Christ gave himself to purify a people. That Christ redeemed a body. That he purchased a family with his blood. And this passage reminds us of that great fact. It gives us this beautiful account of the Lord's Supper while at the same time confronting our tendency towards individualism, towards selfishness. It proclaims the good news of the gospel. It proclaims that Christ gave himself as a sacrifice for sinners 
to form us into a spiritual family. And again, I don't think it's, it's not a mistake that this has ended up in the Scripture. That we have this account of the Lord's Supper right in the middle of this issue of divisions and factions in the church. And the point I want to press upon you this morning and make you a little bit uncomfortable is I want you to really examine yourself in this specific area. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I want you to be asking yourself, where is your heart in relation to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are there any resentments, any grudges that you are harboring in your heart? And what we will see, and this leads us to our first point, if we bring our resentment against others, if we bring our divisions to the Lord's table today, we will have a crisis in communion. Paul begins with a very strong rebuke in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And the next statement really clues us in into just how bad things were in this church. He says, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Do you get what Paul is saying here? He's saying, your, your observance of communion is so twisted that it's actually harming people. But this sacred communion meal that is designed by Christ to bring us closer to Christ and closer to each other, he's saying it's actually doing the opposite. And in very strong terms, Paul rebukes them, and he's saying the way they were coming to the Lord's table wasn't just useless, it wasn't just a waste of time, but it was harmful. They were worse off. And he goes as far as to say to them, what you are doing is not the Lord's Supper. And in verse 18, we we start to get to the heart of the issue. And we are warned, and this is your first set of blanks, and we are warned that we can outwardly come together while coming apart. We can gather outwardly, seem as though we're coming together at the table while inwardly coming apart. We can come to worship and to the Lord's table as individuals. We can come harboring resentment and grudges. Paul is playing on this verb, coming together. He uses it five times in this section, and and it's a rebuke. He's essentially saying to them, when you come together, you're not coming together. When you come together, you're, you're fractured. You're divided. He uses these two words here, divisions. It's actually the word schisms, a tearing apart. Separation, the very opposite of communion. 
And then he uses the word factions. This can refer to little cliques or sects, people who excluded others. It's saying when you come together, you're not really coming together. When you're coming together, you're actually coming apart. And in verses 21 and 22, we really get more insight into the problem. And in it, we are warned that we can come selfishly to the table. In addition to all of the other divisions in the Corinthian church, it seems that they were also divided between rich and poor. Verse 21 For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. I don't have time to go into this in depth, but it seems that the Corinthians came to observe communion in the home of a wealthy person. And that was part of the problem. They were having communion outside of a a normal worship service, which should not have been happening. They, they were likely imitating the pagan love feast. And, and, and this gathering looked more like a pagan gathering than it did like the Lord's Supper. And the best way, I think, for me to illustrate it to you is you think of events that we have in the church. We, we have our Fourth of July picnic. We have the cowboy breakfast. And we all gather around, and it's a little bit chaotic and fun, and people are eating here and there, and the kids are out in the yard It would be like us having the Lord's Supper as part of that meal in all that chaos. And yet, unlike those gatherings that we have where everyone gets to have their share of food, the Corinthians brought their own food and they kept their own food. There was no sharing. Paul says each one goes ahead with his own meal. And we can only imagine what happened. The rich people would bring uh, plenty of expensive food, but they would keep that food for themselves. Meanwhile, the poor people would bring meager provisions or nothing at all, and thus Paul says, some leave hungry, while others of you are leaving drunk. They were divided, they were fractured, again, so much so that Paul says, this isn't even the Lord's Supper that you eat. It was a scene of greed and selfishness, and it was aggravating division that was already there. It was deepening hurts that were already present. This meal that was intended to bring them together was actually further dividing them. People were coming to the table with selfishness and resentment and leaving with more selfishness and resentment. Verse 22, Paul says in disbelief, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? The sacrament is designed to be a commemoration of Christ's sacrifice. It's designed to strengthen our union with Him and to bring us closer together as a body. It's a meal that declares that we are one in Christ. 
And here we are warned that it can easily and subtly become an occasion for division. Now I know that we don't have this exact problem. I know no one's keeping food for themselves. But we can have more subtle divisions. Charles Hodge, I think, puts it well when he says, there may not be outward separation, but there can be inward alienation. There may not be outward separation, but there can be inward alienation. We can so easily come to the table as individuals and leave as individuals. And we may not be divided between the rich and the poor, but we can let other things separate us. It can be an inward grudge, subtle indifference, a lack of awareness of the hurts and needs of others. In congregation, I want to press this on you hard because this has been a hard, challenging 18 months. Between the virus itself, the government restrictions, what we should do as a church, frankly, in many cases, there is no right answer. And there are a myriad of positions, a myriad of philosophies. And as I said to you many times, it's a time that was ripe for division. So I ask you again, where is your heart today? We have had people leave our congregation. And it is okay to be hurt, to be grieved. They are our family. We should be hurt and grieved. And yet that does not give us an excuse to be resentful, to hold grudges. Where is your heart today toward your brothers and sisters? And what we see here is that the solution, the solution to any kind of division in the church, the the solution to our inward resentments that we so easily come to cultivate, friends, the answer is nothing less than Christ and His gospel. And so the Spirit of God skillfully points us to, secondly, the Creator of communion. Notice how Paul seeks to unite this divided congregation by pointing them to Christ. He reminds them that it is Christ who instituted this supper. And while he intends to show how the Lord's Supper is to be rightly observed, I, I think more so we're being called to remember the central truth to which this meal points. Paul is saying, look, this meal proclaims that Jesus Christ gave His life for sinners. In verse 23, it's, it's underlined, and this is your first blank, it's underlined that the Lord's Supper is a gift from Christ. In verse 20, it's called the Lord's Supper. 
It's His meal. And yet He invites us to partake in it. And we, back in chapter 1021, it's called the Lord's table. And yet He invites us to come and dine with Him at His table. And then in verse 23, Paul says, I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. You know, it's that language. It's a gift from Jesus. It's a gift from Him. It's a token of His love for us. And that truth in itself should make it precious to us. It should cause us to want to guard it zealously. Friends, the Lord's Supper as a gift from Christ, it reflects the Gospel. We have no right to sit at this table. We have no right to eat of the Supper of the King. We don't deserve it. And yet we are given it as a free gift, just like the Gospel. And friends, the fact that this is such a precious gift from Christ means that we dare not trample on it. That we dare not do anything that undermines its meaning. It declares the sacrifice of Christ and the unity of His body. And that is true especially because secondly, the central meaning of the sacrament is that it proclaims Christ's sacrifice. It's about the cross. It tells us that Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. And the main word that Jesus used to describe the nature of this sacrament is the word covenant. He said the cup is the new covenant in my blood. The Lord's Supper proclaims that we are in a covenant relationship with our Lord and our God. It's a sign and seal of that relationship, but at the same time it highlights the cost at which that relationship was secured, the cost at which we are made into a covenant family. The focal point of this meal is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That He laid down His life in your place. He was the sacrifice for your sins that He obeyed perfectly in your place. The sacrament declares that Jesus gave everything for you. And when Christ commands us to remember Him at His table, it doesn't say, remember me in a manger or remember me when I was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, remember my sacrifice. Remember my cross. Remember my body given, my blood shed for you. We are taught that whenever we eat and drink, we proclaim His death. Do you see how the gospel is being brought to bear on division and sin in the church? 
The Corinthians were selfishly saying, this is my food which is kept for me. And Paul says, Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. And friends, we cannot lose the central meaning of this sacrament. It proclaims a Christ who selflessly laid down His life for us. And it's precisely that glorious truth that we can undermine any kind of grudge or resentment or division. We could say if we do that, if we bring our divisions to this table, we betray Jesus Christ. Ted Donnelly, I think, rightly observes, he says, it is no accident that Paul speaks of the night in which he was betrayed. He was confronting the Corinthians, saying to them by implication, he is still being betrayed by your greed and selfishness, by your schisms and factions. And to bring our division, our resentments, our grudges to the table is to betray Christ and everything that He has done. But I want you to see that this passage really does end on an encouraging note. And it leads us thirdly on coming correctly to commune. Paul ends with some correction and instruction on how to come correctly to the Lord's table. And the first requirement is that we come in a worthy manner. A worthy manner. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I want you to hear this clearly. The requirement for coming to the Lord's table is not that you examine yourself to see if you are worthy. No one has ever been worthy to come to the Lord's table. No one. The requirement is to come in a worthy manner. The, the word unworthy in verse 27 is an adverb. And it modifies the eating and drinking, not the person coming to the table. None of us are worthy to come. And, and I think the great paradox is, to come in any worthy manner involves examining ourselves and coming to see our sin and realizing how unworthy we are to dine with the risen Christ. And some of the Corinthians were weak and sick and some had died not because they were unworthy people, but because they had profaned the body and blood of the Lord by coming in an unworthy manner. So we come worthily when we come in Christ, trusting in Him, confessing our sins, trusting in His worthiness. J.A. Hodge puts it well when he said, The word worthily does not mean with merit or holiness, 
but in a fit manner according to the direction of Christ with repentance for sin and faith in Him for salvation. We come in Christ. We come confessing our unworthiness and our sin and trusting in the One who forgives that sin. And then in verse 33, we're given some final instructions. This is your second blank. Verse 33, Paul is essentially saying, when you come together, come as a family. Come as a family. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. He uses three words to remind us that we're a family. Brothers, come together, one another. It's family language. When you come to the table this morning, come as a family. Come remembering your brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Pray that the Lord would cultivate a gracious attitude, an understanding toward one another, a patience with one another. And then finally, even though we examine ourselves and we can't help but be convicted of our sin, the assurance is that you can come as an unworthy sinner to receive grace. I want you to notice here, and this is is pretty amazing, and we can often miss this here. Notice that Paul does not tell these selfish, sinful Corinthians to stop coming to the table. I mean, this situation was a complete and utter mess. And we would almost understand if Paul said, you need to stop coming until you get your act together. But he doesn't say that. He rebukes them. He points them to Christ and His gospel. He teaches them how to come worthily. But then He says, come. And what we can see in all of that is that this is a table for unworthy sinners. The very elements that make up the meal tell us that it's a meal for sinners who need the broken body, who need the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a gift from Jesus Christ. In it we see the gospel proclaimed. We see the sacrifice set before us. We see that bread broken before us. We're reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus. As we see that wine held up, we're reminded of His shed blood that cleanses us from our sin. And as we come together, you mean, you know, the, the imagery of a supper and a table and communion, it's a family picture. We gather as a family. You see, it's a meal for people like us who don't love God as we should, who don't love each other as we should. And that's the great encouragement. We can come confessing those sins, trusting that our Savior will increase and warm our affections toward Him and toward each other. So friends, if we want to see the sin of selfishness mortified in us, 
if we want to be united and not divided, if you want to be more like Christ, then look to Him and attend soberly and carefully and intentionally to this means of grace. See in it a visible sermon where Christ crucified is set before you, where you are reminded of a Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this meal that we are about to gather for. We thank you that it is a gift from Christ and therefore a wonderful and precious thing. But we pray that we might approach it with care, with soberness, and yet, Lord, with joy knowing that our sins are forgiven in Christ, trusting that Christ will strengthen us to become more like Him, that He will warm our affections toward Him and toward one another. Lord, make it a true means of grace to us today as we examine our hearts and see our sin. Lord, lift our eyes to the cross and cause us to come in faith to Christ. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen. Having already read that section from 1 Corinthians, I want to uh, read from Matthew chapter 26 and uh, the words uh, of institution that are recorded there. And I pointed out to you on an occasion before that in in verses 20 through 25, we we really see some thoughtful self-examination. This would not have been a foreign concept to the disciples. The the Feast of Unleavened Bread was one giant exercise in self-examination before the Passover feast. And so when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Lord, is it I? That was real introspection. That was real self-examination. They knew their sinful hearts. They didn't put it past themselves that they could be the one who betrayed him. And then they are invited to come. Self-examination and then an encouragement to eat and to drink. And so let's, uh, let's give ear to these words. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to ask him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better if that man had not been born. Judas, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and 
after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. The Lord's Supper, as we have already thought about, is an ordinance instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to be observed until he comes again in glory as a remembrance of his sacrifice on the cross. The physical elements of bread and wine represent the body and blood of our Savior and are received by true believers as signs and seals of the benefits of his sacrifice. The supper signifies and seals remission of sins, nourishes our souls to grow in Christ. It is a pledge of our union with Christ and our union with each other as members of his body. It also reminds us that the Lord is faithful to fulfill his promises in the covenant of grace. It calls us to renewed commitment to obey and serve the Lord in gratitude for his salvation. While these elements do not actually become the body and blood of Christ, Christ by his spirit is present in the supper, making it a true means of grace for those who receive it by faith. So as you partake today, you do so in thankful remembrance that the body of Christ was given and his blood shed for you. And this should cause you to anticipate the completion of your redemption when you will share in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, that's my paraphrase of our directory for, for worship. And it goes on, and again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. It is the duty of the church to warn you about the sobering nature of the Lord's Supper. If you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation or if you are living an ungodly, disobedient life and have not repented, you should not partake of the Lord's Supper, lest you eat and drink judgment on yourself. The Lord's Supper is for repentant and believing sinners who have examined themselves, who have sought reconciliation with their brothers and sisters in Christ, who come confessing Christ as their Savior and Lord. This warning is not designed to keep the humble and contrite away from the Lord's table. On the contrary, the supper is a means of grace that the Lord gives to sustain his weak children as we live as aliens in a fallen world. We come in a worthy manner if we recognize that in ourselves we are unworthy sinners who need a Savior, if we discern his body given for our sins, if we hunger and thirst after Christ, giving thanks for his grace, trusting in his merits, feeding on him by faith, and renewing with him our covenant with him and with his people. Friends, if you are prepared to come in that way, with that humble and contrite heart, hear our Lord's invitation from Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen.